created live on Fireside. Welcome, I'm Lori Lee Binstock, and this is a Trauma Survivor Thrivers Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me live on Fireside Chat, where you can be a part of the conversation as my virtual audience. I am your host, Lori Lee Binstock. Everyone has an opportunity to ask me or our guest questions by requesting to hop on stage or sending a message in the chat box. I will try to get to you, but I do ask that everybody be respectful. Today's guest is Jenny Rochelle. Jenny is a coach, a mentor, the host of the Beauty After Betrayal podcast, and the go-to expert on love and relationships for women who don't want to give up on love. Inspired by her clients and informed by her own journey, Jenny teaches women how to move through trauma and break old patterns so they can stop the cycle of toxic relationships and create the happiest and healthiest intimate connections of their lives. Jenny, thank you so much for joining me today. Hello, Jenny. Are you there? I'm here. Hi. Welcome. Thank you. (laughs) No, my apologies. I know it can get a little tricky first starting out on Fireside. You're not not the first and you won't be the last person to have some issues. I appreciate that. (laughs) Yeah, no, no worries. Uh, Well, we could go ahead and get started. Um, You know, my show is called the Trauma Survivor Thrivers Podcast because most if not all of my guests are trauma survivors who are now thriving with purpose. And so I almost always ask my guests how they got to where they are today. You are a relationship expert and coach. So I want to know, how did your journey get you here? Well, yeah, so I definitely um, have been sort of a lifelong healer looking to, you know, use my life for purpose. And um, probably, you know, about 10 years ago or so, um, longer than them, like 12 years ago, I started like thinking about becoming a life coach. And as I was going into that practice, as many life coaches do, I was like, what is my niche going to be? What am I going to focus on? <laughs> right? And then in the middle of that process, um, I had what we call in my world, in the world of betrayal trauma and the world of sex addiction, a D-Day or a Discovery Day in which it was November of 2012, discovered that my now ex-husband was a sex addict. And that sort of put me headlong into this process, this healing journey of what am I going to do? How am I going to take care of myself and my family? But very early on in the process, knew that I would eventually take that, that I'd found my niche, which is a very sort of tongue-in-cheek thing to say. <laughs> but I was like, this is how I'm going to this is how I'm going to survive what happened to me and then go on and and turn it into a way that I thrive and to help other women get through that same process. Well, that's really interesting. So, and I think many women are probably, or even men, what, what, how did you figure that out that your husband was a sex addict? Were there signs leading up to it? There were, you know, it's, it's always one of those things where you look back and you're like, should I have mm-hmm. known from that thing that happened or not known? And I think, you know, when it comes to sex addiction, it's so covert, right? There's so much deception that happens. It's not like with another addiction where it's super obvious that something's going on. Um, but definitely it was a big day. It was sort of out of the blue um, he was arrested and I never talk about who he was arrested for, but he was arrested 
And I knew in that moment almost immediately that he was a sex addict. And I knew from that point forward that everything was going to have to change. This, like I said, is November of 2012. And even in that moment that I knew it was going to have to change, it still took until March of 2015 for me to really get to the point where I was like, okay, (laughs) seriously, this has to change. Because, you know, when we experience traumas, I'm sure you know that sometimes they're so big, we can't deal with them. Mm -hmm. That's why, that's why denial exists. It's, it's actually perfectly, perfectly legitimate coping mechanism that we're built in with. And it it took me that many years to say, okay, for real, he's not going to get better on his own. I have to figure out how to get myself to safety and, you know, my kids to safety. And then there was still like a couple more years of trying to figure out whether or not we could keep, whether or not I could stay married to this person and whether or not I wanted to. Mm-hmm. You know, that's really, so can we, if you really wanted to stay with this person, uh, and I, I'm, I'm kind of asking for, for you know, may, probably many other women who are thinking, should I stay? I want to stay, but I don't know, is this the right thing to do? How do you know if it's, it is the right thing to do? Or is it just a hard, like, this is, this is not going to work at all? You know, I, I think it's, it's a very individual and, and personalized decision. And it depends a lot. It depends a lot on, on a few things. One of them, I wanted to say, it depends a lot on whether the person, you know, the addict in the relationship is willing and capable of getting into real recovery. And real recovery means doing the work, you know, going to probably a 12-step, perhaps rehab, like making a, a daily commitment to sobriety um, and honesty in the relationship. But even then, like in my case, my ex, he eventually, <laughs> you know, he it didn't initially do it, but eventually, you know, he and I still co-parent now. We have a good relationship and even though he was moving towards like real recovery, I chose not to stay in the relationship because there was so much unsafety for me. Mm-hmm. And here's, you know, a statistic of um, 70% of partners of sex addicts experience or they, they experience symptoms of PTSD similar to someone who's had a violent sexual assault. Mm-hmm. So it's really significant. And so choosing whether or not to stay in a relationship where the potential exists for that, and that's the thing about any sort of sobriety is like there's going to be relapses. It's going to be messy. And so it, and it really is like when you're in a relationship with an addict, there is significant a significant amount of gaslighting and emotional abuse that, of course, happens because they're trying to maintain this secret life. So it's very personalized. And when I work with clients... Most of the women who are drawn to me, I just work with women, most of the ones who are drawn to me are women who either are, know they're moving on, have moved on, or know they want to, but haven't quite admitted to themselves yet. Wow. Did you, what were the PTSD symptoms that you experienced? So for sure, right? Like I couldn't sleep, I couldn't eat, rapid heart rate, um, 
you know, social, social isolation, mm-hmm. sort of like very sort of typical things, completely dysregulated nervous system, ruminating thoughts is a big one, sort of playing over the scenes that happened over and over again in my mind, trying to make sense of it. One thing that showed it for me is a lot of my clients is like this, we become like these world-class investigative reporters or detectives <laughs> who were like, if I just get this little bit more information, then I know that I'm going to feel safe. Do you feel that in searching for that information, that little bit of information that they need to feel safe, um, that they will actually feel safe? Generally, no. <laughs> <laughs> Generally, that's like this this thing, you know, it's, it's a kind of like bargaining through the grief process. It's like, yeah. if I just have this piece of information, then I will know enough. And the truth is, by that point, we already know enough. We just don't want to know it. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, so we're talking about betrayal trauma. And, you know, I'm assuming that betrayal trauma can really encompass a wide range of things. But could you actually define betrayal trauma and that impact? Absolutely. So it, it the broadest definition and its original definition, it was created for children who experience abuse at the hands of their caregivers. And the broadest definition is when a person or institution we rely on for safety and security betrays our trust. So you can we can clearly see, right, in the case of like a, a child who's being abused by a caregiver, they're supposed to keep that child safe and secure, and they're not doing that. And so it can also be applied to like institutions. My favorite thing to talk about right now is, you know, I live in Austin, Texas, two years ago, Right. There was a massive power outage for a week. Everybody lost power. We lost our safety and security. And all the people in the state felt really betrayed by the government, by the electric system that was supposed to keep the lights on and keep us safe. And right, like, you know, lots of people even died here in the state. Mm -hmm. Another great example is you look like the Catholic Church scandal. Even people who weren't physically, you know, are abused by the priest. The lying and the deception that went on was a, a kind of betrayal trauma. So that's sort of like at the institutional level, at the personal level, for sure, like our partners, our spouses who are supposed to keep us safe. And that's what we do in relationships. And not just be, it can be beyond romantic relationships. We can have good friends who betray us, right? We can have a coworker who betrays us and the impact on a person can vary depending on the closeness of the relationship, sort of like the specific behaviors involved in the betrayal. And like each person sort of reacts differently to a trauma based on how they're wired in previous traumas. Mm. You know, when, when something was really interesting that you said, you know, when I was in residential treatment for childhood sexual abuse, I had to fill out a codependency form, figuring out if I was actually codependent. And I had trouble filling it out. And I thought, you know, I thought I was codependent based on the questions that I was being asked, but eventually I think they determined that I wasn't. Um, I'm not sure actually how the report kind of came out, but, you know, somewhere you said that codependency is a bullshit label. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm already <laughs> chuckling because I know I always know when this question is going to go. I do. I think like, I think it is like this BS label. Um you know, for, for a variety of reasons, and I'm not, I promise I'm not the only person who's out here saying this. I have other respected mentors. <laughs> like, there's, there's, there's reason for this. I think that those behaviors, and I'm sure this was true in your case, it's like 
those behaviors are rooted in unprocessed, unhealed trauma. Right. When we experience a trauma, can kind of sh- we. I love the definition that we become overwhelmed in the moment. It's a thing that's so big that we can't do the thing in that moment that we needed to do to protect ourselves, fight or flight. And, and what happens is we freeze, right? And that body gets, the, the trauma gets stuck in our body. It gets stuck in our subconscious. And then in the case of like a, a childhood trauma, then we spend sort of a lifetime trying to work that out, right? And so it, it looks like one of two ways generally one, we become super hyper vigilant, which is a way that today, even today, the PTSD shows up for me from the betrayal trauma as well as childhood sexual trauma. It looks like hyper vigilance, where you know, avoidant, we avoid intimacy, we shut down, um, we're always on the lookout for specific dangers, we have a hard time trusting. Right? That that's how that can look like. The flip side of that is we, you know, we sort of un- completely unconsciously try to recreate situations where we can have the action, have the thing happen to us again, and then be able to do what we needed to do. But the problem is we don't usually do that effectively if we haven't gotten some help, like with the trauma that happened. And over a lifetime, if this thing happens when we're really young and all of a sudden we're in our 20s or 30s or 40s, that behavior then I think gets, that's what gets labeled as codependency or like a personality defect, so that's sort of one piece of it where I, I think we miss what's happening, especially to women. And not to mention, or also to mention, <laughs> we're we're trained as women to take care of people, that we create safety for ourselves by making sure everybody else feels okay. Yeah. And I think that also gets labeled as codependency. It's just, I think it's unfair and it misses this larger, deeper problem. Wow. Yep. You know, that is, that is very accurate because, you know, I, I, I did have codependency tendencies because of the, the child abuse. And, you know, I, I, I guess you could, you know, under its broadest terms, that would be considered betrayal trauma. So I guess that just naturally, that is just our natural coping mechanisms and these co these codependency tendencies. So that does make a lot of sense instead of just labeling it. It's it's really, really more of a symptom. Yes. Would yeah. you say? Yeah, more of a symptom than just like a label um, to say you are codependent instead right. of Right, absolutely. And, and specifically in the world of sex addiction, you know, for for a long time partners of sex addicts or even ex-partners like we, we were labeled as co-addicts and that we were codependent. And, and like all these sort of safety seeking behaviors were labeled as like codependency, co-addiction. And then finally, there were some credible people in that community, many of my mentors who paused and said, wait a minute, we don't think this is fair. And they did research and showed, this is where that 70% number that I, I came up earlier came from this, this, these same group of people. They showed that like the symptoms of that were being labeled as co-addiction and codependency were actually symptoms of PTSD. Mm-hmm. So I think we can take that research and apply it to the larger body, like the larger collective of people. I agree. I actually, I, I really agree on that one. Um, so for you, how were you able to move on? And, and what, and I think that'll go, I, I want to ask, you know, what are the biggest fears when it comes to dating and moving on after heartbreak or betrayal trauma? 
absolutely. You, you know, it's mainly the fear of getting hurt again. Right, <laughs> like, right. How do I ever trust someone again? How do I ever move on? And, and then one of the ways that we can get stuck in relationships too and leaving that toxic relationship is – you know, we get sort of stuck into kind of like a scarcity mindset. We usually think about scarcity in terms of like money or resources, but it can also show up of like, I'm too old or no good men out there, right? There's all this sort of, my picker is broken, which is another sort of flavor of codependency label, I think. But really just having to lean in and believe, right, that there, there that there's more love for you and also at the bottom of all of those fears, besides scarcity, it's always, do I trust myself? How do I trust myself again? If we go back to one of the first questions that you asked me, it's like, were there signs? And so that's like one of the, you know, repetitive thoughts or fears that that I had and that my clients will have. It's like, should I have seen this? I was duped for so long. And there's a lot of self-forgiveness and self-compassion that has to happen. And then slowly learning how to trust yourself again. Uh, So I'm wondering, how do we not take the baggage, the PTSD that we received from our former relationship and not bring that to our new relationship? I think it's impossible. (laughs) (laughs) How do we, how do we, how do I, then let me ask, let me ask this way. How, how are we able to make those, that relationship successful without maybe putting on the, because at that point, right, you have your trust issues and, you know, and like you said, it's, it's hard to trust somebody again. And I feel like, what if that person is worthy of trust, yet you you still hold that baggage and you still hold that belief that I don't know if I can trust this person? Because I think that that can affect the relationship as well. Oh, absolutely, um, and I and definitely I can talk about my person <laughs> my personal experience <laughs> with that. Oh, absolutely, I'd love absolutely. To hear it. It, it it really I think one it really takes sort of an awareness. One of how that PTSD shows up for you in relationships and really understanding what it looks like, really knowing that when you're triggered, recognizing that you're being triggered, if not immediately when I say triggered, like something happening in the moment is like triggering the PTSD. It's putting you right back in the traumatic moment and your body is in the present moment feeling what happened before. So really understanding what that looks like for you and know that like all of this really begins with trusting yourself. It's like my husband, you know, he's a wonderful human being. He's, he, we built a great intimate relationship sort of on top of my trust issues and realizing that, you know, I'm like 51. So when you get to be my age and and you're getting remarried, you know, Everybody brings stuff to relationships. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I think we can be afraid we have to be perfect or fixed. And that's not just not how it works. But really knowing that at the at the at the end of it, I trust myself to make good decisions and I trust myself to be okay no matter what. How do you learn to trust yourself? It's a slow process <laughs> that, you know, like any other sort of recovery, maybe like I have good days and bad days, but really, you know, we, we talk a lot about boundaries, right? It's very about mm-hmm. these days. And mainly when we think about boundaries, we really think about boundaries for another person outside of us. But the key to building self-trust is really the boundaries that we have for ourselves. 
It's mm-hmm. like, I'm going to do what I tell myself I'm going to do in, in our lifetime. And that can look like as simple as like, I'm going to go for a walk today because I told myself I was going to go for a walk today. Or we can talk about it when we get into relationships of like, if this person I'm dating does X, right? Whatever I sort of know my red flags are, or my even like, you know, my sort of yellow flags. If that person does this, they don't return phone calls or there's some other, you know, thing, this sort of limit that I've set for myself, I have to trust myself to walk away. And that can be really, really hard as we're moving on and we get sort of anxiously attached or we really want the relationship and we can sort of talk ourselves into staying. But those are the critical moments. We have to make the right, right choices to support ourselves. Would you ever suggest maybe having a conversation with your your next partner and say, you know, here are my trust issues. Here are my the symptoms of what had happened to me, my the betrayal trauma that I experienced. Is is that smart to have that conversation with your next partner or is that too much information for them? No, I think it's necessary at some point. And that's like where it's it's a personal decision and it and it's a discernment as you're becoming more intimate with this person. And, and I think you want to wait until you're like, okay, this person is good. I like <laughs> them. This could be serious. How do I lead into it? And you sort of know that automatically, you know, when you're moving on after PTSD with betrayal trauma, because it's sort of fun in games at first. We're like, oh, this person's fun. We're having a great time. And this is my experience. I have clients. I have many girlfriends who I met, like, because we have a shared experience. Once you start to really like them, like your nervous system is like, wait a minute, <laughs> like we go into that fight or flight. It's like, what? why are we doing this again? Bad thing happens. So you sort of know when you're starting to really like this person. And so that's when you're like, okay, I probably need to share a little bit. And and I think sometimes and trauma survivors can kind of go one of two ways where we don't want to tell anybody anything, right? We mm-hmm. don't ever want to talk about it. We don't want to feel right. like a burden. Or we want to over-explain ourselves. We want to tell everybody everything. And and it really is like this genuine need to be seen. And all humans, we want to be seen. But it's like sitting with what is right for me and what I really need to tell this person in this moment. And so like with my own relationship with Jeff, my husband, you know, as soon as I started having really wicked PTSD, <laughs> I would start, I shared with him like little bits of my story at a very high level. This is what happened to me. I experienced betrayal trauma. That's what, that's why these are my symptoms. This is how it shows up for me. And I remember saying, you get to say yes or no. Like you get to choose whether or not you want to sign up for this in this relationship with me, or you get to not do that. And not everybody is up for that. He, and then also believing like that I was worth it, right? Because yeah. we can tend to feel like a burden, but knowing that I was worth it for him to do the work and learn how to care for me. And honestly, we have to learn how to care for our partners no matter what. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I'd also talk a lot about like, you know, self-love, like, and I think that's, that, that goes along with the trusting yourself and the boundaries, your boundaries that you set with yourself. Um, and I think that is, that is so important. Um, what is everyday intimacy and, and how do you practice it? So that's like, you know, I think when we think about intimacy, 
we generally tend to say, oh, it's sex. Mm, <laughs> right? Yeah. Which is just, that is just one flavor, one slice or one way to experience intimacy. And really to get to that moment, we should be building it on, on layers of different kinds of intimacy. And that's certainly for me, I people have their own um, relationships with sex and boundaries and all, and everybody to their own as long as there's meaningful consent and safety, like whatever. But for me to think that we're going to create intimacy just by having sex, that's sort of like the last place that you want to end up. Before that, you want to feel safe with the person. You want to have shared, ex- there's experiential intimacy where you, you have experiences that you love. There's intellectual intimacy where you can, you feel safe to like share your thoughts and feelings, right? Emotional intimacy. I said feelings, we'll say feelings again. There's lots of different ways that we can show up and be vulnerable with those that we love. And it's really about being very intentional to create these conscious moments of connection, sort of, if not every day, like almost every day. And so like there are ways that Jeff and I do that. We'll go for walks in the morning and that's how we sort of, we call it sort of like staff meetings, right? Where we're (laughs) talking about the day and what we need to get done. It's just slowing down and carving time out to be two humans together. Also like really practicing that with my kids, you know, and like, how do they need to be loved? What's a moment for them? Like one of my favorite things I used to do with my, my youngest son is I would take him on toad walks in the evening. We'd walk around the neighborhood and, and hunt for toads. And that was a way that he like needed to be loved. And it was these really sweet moments. You know, I don't want as a human really want to go out and hunt toads, but I, you know, <laughs> but it didn't cost me anything and it meant so much to him. And so really just slowing down and like making sure we, like I just keep saying these conscience, conscious present moments where we're like, I'm going to be with you in this moment. Mm, that's beautiful. That is beautiful. Um, and, you know, you, you've talked about five negative beliefs about sex. And I'm assuming one of them was, um, but I may be wrong, so I'll let you go um, talk about it. But <laughs> could you share what they are? Sure, absolutely. I always I try to credit everybody that I, I uh, you know, adopted ideas from. And the, the five negative beliefs about sex is from, from a book called Your Sexual Healing Journey, which was written for people who experienced um childhood sexual abuse. But, and because of that experience, we end up with sort of five negative beliefs about sex and I'll have to make sure Mm. I can remember them all. But, you know, um, sex is uncontrollable. Sex is secretive. Sex is a commodity. Sex has no moral bounds and sex is, is hurtful. Mm. And so when I was reading that book, for sure, I know that there's a correlation of symptoms between you know, uh, childhood sexual abuse or sexual assault and betrayal trauma, especially sexual betrayal trauma. Um, and so that's why I started doing this research. Also, I'm a childhood a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. And so I was reading this book, but I saw these five negative, these five beliefs, these five lies, negative beliefs about sex. I thought, this is so much broader than any of that. Sex is secret. Sex is a commodity. Right, like those I think we experience at the macro level, right? It's especially like sex is a commodity that's everywhere, right? Mm. Like in the ads and these sort of unconscious thoughts that we can have of like, well, if I, if he takes me on a really nice date, then maybe I owe him something, right? And I think even as aware mm. and self-aware as we can be, 
I still will find myself having these thoughts of like that. And I'll be like, what the hell? Why are you thinking that? But it's so, I think, sort of ingrained um, in, in our society. Wow, you're right. I feel like it is that this is this is how, especially for the way women look at sex. I think it's, you know, we owe we owe these men our bodies because they are they've done something very nice to us, or they've like you said they've taken us out on a really nice date, maybe you know. And I and how do you how do you not think of it in those terms? How do you think of it as? sex is 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 a part of intimacy right it's a positive like our bodies are built to experience pleasure <laughs> right mm. and, and and like for real we're designed that way um and for that sort of connection and so the first thing that you do is and honestly you know this the root of all of this sort of healing work is self-awareness of like mm, understanding yeah. why you're having this reaction and i think some of this work around sex can be some of the hardest to uncover because we don't even know that we're having these thoughts. But like, and so this is, you know, one of the, the courses that I would teach your big sexy comeback was really designed to help women, specifically women healing from betrayal trauma, how to figure out what are those beliefs that are, what are the beliefs that I have? And maybe I didn't even know that I have. And when we have those beliefs, they show up in the operating system when we don't even know that they're there. So it's really uncovering like, oh God, you're right. I do do that. I do feel that sex is secret because I was, this is me, again, specifically, I was raised in this very conservative Christian upbringing where sex was a sin, masturbation was a sin. All of that stuff was terrible. You're going to go straight to hell, full stop, right, for like doing mm-hmm. any of those things. And realizing how that still shows up as a grown woman in in, in my sexual relationship. Mm, wow. Well, Jenny, is there anything else that you would like to add? You know, I just I always want to say like you're not alone, and I'm a firm believer. Like one of my my at the deepest root of what I feel called to do, it's like it's um being a messenger of hope and healing, and so knowing that you can get through this, you can recover, you can go on to date again, you can go on to fall in love again, you can learn how to trust yourself and other people. Like we don't have to let that trauma define us. We don't have to stay in that place forever. And it does take commitment and work and doing some things that I'm sure you you (laughs) don't always feel very good in the moment, but getting the support and the help and the the sisterhood, right, that you need. Yes, I recovery is not linear. It's, right. You know, I think that that's what took me a long time to figure out like as soon as I was, I, f- I felt a setback, I was like, "Oh, I failed." Yeah. But that's not true. That's it's, not true. So it's you, not true. Yeah. Well said. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jenny. I really appreciate it. Oh, the pleasure is all mine, Laura Lee. I really appreciate being on here and being able to share, you know, this message that I have with your community and I hope it resonates. Well, thank you. I'm sure it sure it has. I mean, I, I've I've learned a lot from your information that you've just provided and you know, this is this is just an ongoing process of recovery. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much, Laura Lee. 
That was Jenny Rochelle, coach, mentor, relationship expert, and host of the Beauty After Betrayal podcast. For more information on Jenny, you can click on that scrolling fortune cookie right there in the middle of your screen. Also, February's issue of Authentic Insider is out, which Jenny has contributed to. To check out Authentic Insider, you can go to traumasurvivorthriver.com. That's traumasurvivorthriver.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe to my email list to get Authentic Insider Magazine in your inbox monthly. Thank you for joining me today. Join me live on Fireside next week, February 15th, when I speak with Colleen Ryan Hensley. She's a performance coach and mental health advocate. We will be discussing the evolution of mental toughness. You've been listening to a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast on Fireside. I'm Lori Lee Binstock. Have a great day.